0: Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our I my village.
1: I know where they're taking your clan.
0: Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG thirteen. Some material may be inappropriate for children under thirteen. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. To be successful at their craft, magicians must possess the well-honed technical skills to pull off their mystifying tricks and clever sleights of hand. But as magician Steve Cohn observes, they must also be masters at attracting interest, holding attention, and leaving audiences with fond memories of their time together. Skills that everyone can use to persuade audiences, charm dates, own a room, and influence others. Steve, also known as The Millionaire's Magician, is the author of Win the Crowd, Unlock the Secrets of Influence, Charisma, and Showmanship. Today on the show, Steve shares the insights he and his fellow magicians know on everything from taking command of a room, to creating a compelling character, to making a magical entrance. Steve shares how to build your boldness through put-pocketing, develop spontaneous resourcefulness, get people wrapped up in the magic of your message by suggesting rather than stating, increase your confidence by having a place for everything and everything in its place and much more. At the end of our conversation, he shares two of his most interesting tips and explains how to influence people to do what you want by using layered commands and the trailing or. After the show's over, check out our show notes at awmis slash crowd. Steve Cohen welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So you are a magician and you call yourself the millionaire's magician. Where did that descriptor come from and uh, how are your magic shows different from say the ones you might see in Las Vegas? Okay, well, for the past 23
1: years, I've been doing a live show in New York City. I've also taken it around the world to various other major metropolises, but New York City is my home base. For 17 of those years, I performed at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in the Penthouse Suite. So I think that kind of speaks to the millionaire's magician moniker, is that the people who come to the Waldorf Astoria were really kind of, uh, you know, people who were enjoying the finer things in life. So I performed the show at the Waldorf for, as I said, 17, actually 17 and a half years, moved the show to the New York Palace Hotel, which is a really ultra luxury 19th century mansion in the middle of Manhattan, right behind St. Patrick's Cathedral. And when people come to the magic show, it's a real experience. It's not just like you're going to a conference room or going into you know, a, a bar. It's actually a 19th century parlor which has gilded ceilings and beautiful marble pillars and Persian rugs. And the experience is one that you kind of you know, will think about afterwards as a step back in time. So that's really what I think differs from my show with a lot of other magic shows, is that I'm trying to honor the history of magic and bring it back to life again. Many times, magicians try to be au courant and make something which is very, you know, of the times. But in my case, we have everyone dress up in cocktail attire, and it's a very elegant and kind of, I wouldn't say staid evening, because it's not that at all. It's really fun, but it is more of a formal dress-up affair. And I've had many people say to me afterwards, like, why did you make us dress up? And then, you know, when they walk in, they say, oh, now I get it, because you're in this really ultra-luxury 19th century mansion. It looks like you're walking into Versailles.
0: So it's very intimate. So I think maybe people have been to a, a big magic show. Where there's fog machines and lasers, and you know maybe some tigers. You're trying to go back to that where it's a small room, a group of people, and it's 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 a very intimate experience.
1: That's correct. Yeah. So you know, the maximum size audience that I perform for at the Palace Hotel for the, my show Chamber Magic is 64 people. So it's it's very intimate. You know, when anytime you're under a hundred is is
0: intimate. So the reason I brought you on is. Back in 2006, you wrote a book called Win the Crowd. And what it is, is you talk about what you do as a magician to practice good showmanship. So being a great magician isn't just about mastering the technique. That's an important part. That's a necessary and essential part. But it's not sufficient. You also need to have charisma, understand psychology, understand presentation. And the things you use as a magician... You make the case they can apply to anybody who's trying to present themselves in the world, whether in business or in their personal life. And then when the crowd, you start the book off highlighting what you call your five maxims of magic that can be used to persuade and influence. And the first maxim is be bold. So as a magician, what does that look like for you? To take
1: risks. Don't be shy about the actions you take or the words that you speak. And so really what that means to me is that you need to try things that you've never tried before. Otherwise, you won't get results that you've never had before. And so, you know, there's a great magician. His name was Jimmy Grippo. And the legend goes that Jimmy Grippo was sitting in a bank just before closing hour. And he saw that the bank manager was about to close the safe, that time-locked safe. And he just took this bold moment and he took a playing card that he had in his pocket, let's say it was the Three of Diamonds, and he just flung it with his hand. He flung it and whipped it, and it skirted underneath the door as the safe door was closing. So now inside of this locked safe on the floor is a Three of Diamonds just sitting there, unbeknownst to the bank manager or anyone else in that bank. So now he walks away With a kind of a tingle in his eye, and and he goes home and thinks, how am I going to take advantage of this? So the next day, he goes back to the bank, and he sees the bank manager, and he says, I'd like to show you a magic trick. I remember me from yesterday, and the manager's like, yeah. And so he says, let me show you a card trick, and he pulls out a deck of cards that matches the same card back design as the one that he had flung inside the, the vault. And he made sure that this bank manager took a card which was identical, the three of diamonds. There's magic ways to do that. And so after the bank manager took the three of diamonds, he put the card back in the deck and Jimmy Grippo says, Now I'm going to make your card disappear and reappear inside that vault. And the bank manager says, That's impossible. He says, Well, open it up. And he says, I can't open it because it doesn't open until the time lock opens at eight AM. So he says, Okay, we'll just wait for it. And they waited. And they opened up the vault, and sure enough, on the floor is that three of diamonds. And so that's a miracle, right? I mean, the bank manager's eyes bulged out of his head. He wouldn't stop talking about it. And that's the type of story that would create legends that would actually pay off in great dividends for Jimmy Grippo for years to come. Look, we're talking about it decades after he's died. So you never would really know the outcome unless you gave it a try. And that's really what boldness means to me as a magician is that unless you try something that may fail, you may not ever actually get any magnificent outcome. Now, having said that, what happens if he goes back to the bank and the manager wouldn't let him perform a card trick? Or what happens if the bank manager took the wrong card? Or what if the bank manager said, you know, go away. We don't need to see this now. We've got other things going on. I have a, you know, a manager's meeting. Well, then that's a lost opportunity. But at the same time, He didn't really lose anything at all. It was a trial which could eventually turn into something magnificent. And if it fails, it doesn't harm anyone. So I think that's really what being bolder is wrapped up in.
0: So how can like regular people be more bold in their social interactions, you think?
1: Well, I mean, I think part of it is just to overcome your natural tendency to be quiet and to shut up, just to become a bigger version of yourself, so for instance, let's say you're in an elevator and you see some random person just standing there. The, the likely response would just be to be quiet, not say anything. But if you want to practice being a little bit bolder, one thing that you could do is just like say to that person, hey, nice sweater you're wearing there. I like that. Or maybe the person might respond, thank you. Maybe they'll think you're a creep. And <laughs> Maybe they'll ignore you and just get off the elevator. But what you've just done is you've built up A little bit of a notch in your belt of being bold. You've tried something you haven't tried before. Now, admittedly, it's very, that's a simple drill, right? That's not something that would really be, you know, some great advancement in your ability to be bold. However, another example I, I give in the book, which I love, and I've actually done this to people and have it had done to me, is what we call the quarter load. And you know, you've heard of pickpocketing, right? People go up to you and they bump into you and they steal your wallet if you're in the subway or if you're walking around in a crowded place. That happens, it has happened, you know, for centuries. However, this is the opposite. It's called the quarter load. You're put pocketing. You're putting things into people's pockets. And again, this is just, it it sounds like a joke. sounds like a gag. sounds like a ruse. But I've done this many times. And I think this can help you build up your courage and your boldness and your ability to feel like you can do things you haven't done before. So what I do is I walk around with a bunch of quarters in my pocket. And these days, hardly anyone carries change, but I have done this for many years. And when you see someone, you kind of just tap them and one of the quarters you've had hidden in your hand, I forgot to mention, you hide one quarter inside of your fingers and when you tap the person, you load the quarter into their jacket pocket. Now it could be their side pocket, it could be their breast pocket, it could be their purse. If it's a woman, it could be you know a shirt pocket, it could be any sort of a pocket. But the idea is to try to load this coin inside of someone's pocket. Now why would you do that? It seems like a foolish task for me to give you. What it does is it gives you this giddy feeling that you've just invaded their space, that you're not stealing anything from them. You're not taking anything from them. In fact, you're giving them value. You're giving them a little bit of money, not very much, admittedly, but you're giving them something. And at the same time, you're walking away thinking, I just got away with something and it's made me stronger. And it's so foolish and it sounds ridiculous. And I've had people say, that's how you're going to teach someone to become bolder. And I've had people do it to me. And they walk up to me and they're just talking to me. They pat me on the chest like, hey, how's it going, Cohen? And then I go home and sure enough, I find a quarter in my pocket. One man did it to me. He loaded an amethyst crystal into my pocket. And then he emailed me the next day saying, see, I got you. And it gave him this sense of power. It gives the people who've done this to me this sense of power. And it's not much
0: power. But it gives you the feeling of what it feels like to be bold. Uh, So the second maxim is expect success. And I think this is with Grippo. He, not only was he bold, but he expected success with this trick. As a magician, when you're working, how do you go into a show expecting success? Well, you know, I've got an interesting story about this. So,
1: One of my very close friends, unfortunately, passed away at a young age, was named Mark Sisher. He was a great magician. He had just graduated from college, worked for a couple of years before passing away. But I remember I was living overseas. I was living in Tokyo, Japan at the time. And I got a letter from him because this is before the age of email and uh, before cell phones. This is, we're talking, you know, decades back. And he sent me a, a typewritten letter. And in the letter, he said, Steve, I figured out how to perform magic more effectively. And what he wrote was that he doesn't go into his performance venues thinking that it's an adversarial relationship, but he goes in there assuming that the audience already loves him. And he said, by assuming that my audience already loves me, then I don't have to be aggressive towards them to try to push them to like me. And I thought that was really interesting because you know magic in general is rather adversarial, right? I mean, I'm going to fool you, you can't catch me. Right? That's what a lot of magic is. And the audience if given that prompt will probably say, "Okay, I will try to catch you and you're not going to fool me." So, so the difference being now if, you know, like my friend Mark Sisher said, if you go in there assuming that people are going to love you, you're expecting success, and that changes the tone of the performance. It changes the tone of the engagement that you're going to have with your, with your audience. Now, having said that, most people who are listening to this, I'm assuming, are not magicians. So what would that mean then for someone else? Well, I would like write down, for example, the likely outcomes of what an, experience, what an engagement might be and think of what's the best possible way that this can possibly go. So, whether you're having a business meeting or a presentation, think of what the best possible outcome is and then actually focus on that. A lot of times we think about what the negative things are, like what can go wrong. You know, never apologize, never panic, never go into something thinking, okay, you know, I'm going to, this is going to fail. You know, I just go into my performances thinking, I've done this before, I know it's going to work, and it's going to work. So, it's very, You know, it's kind of basic, it's kind of a simple thinking, but if you know what your desired outcome is, then you can veer towards that in the right direction.
0: I think oftentimes when people give public speeches, they're afraid that everyone's just judging them and looking at all their mistakes. And really if you think about it when I'm listening to someone give a speech I'm rooting for them like I want them to do well like I want them to succeed and even when they have a, a slip up I'm not like oh what a dumb dumb I'm just like that's all right you can recover from this and that can happen in social interactions too I think when you know you're interacting with somebody at least what I am interacting with somebody I'm not thinking boy this person what a dumb dumb I'm thinking hey I want this person to to do okay here so I think that mentality can apply to anybody. Uh, how do you expect success when things go wrong, right? So I imagine you've done thousands and thousands of shows. Not every trick goes off the way it's supposed to. So what do you do when something doesn't go as planned so you can still maintain that idea of expect success? Right.
1: Well, here's the thing. Yes, I have done thousands of shows. In fact, this public show, Chamber Magic, will be celebrating its 6,000th performance this fall and this is in uh, 2023. So, you know, if you've done, you know, this the, the show is nearly 2 hours long, you know, 12,000 hours of performing, lots of things have gone wrong. And because lots of things have gone wrong, I've built up kind of a an arsenal of ways to get around that. Maybe that means that I'm seeing something happen, I see something going south before the audience does. And I have what's basically a plan B and a plan C. Magicians like to call these outs. And an out is basically just knowing a possible ending that would not be the number one desirable ending, but it's the number two or number three desirable ending. And it, it could be, you know, a little less effective, but it's still an ending. So I think that one of the great things that you could do is if you are going to give a presentation or a public speech, if you're giving any sort of, a, you know, a sales talk, it's nice to challenge yourself with what could go wrong and then have contingencies. So it's not worth panicking. It's not worth apologizing. If something goes wrong, you don't even have to say anything. You just say, okay, let's try it try again. I've dropped cards. I've dropped things in front of an audience. I've had props fail when I had important people in the audience. And remember, I'm performing for you know people who are... You know, celebrities, for billionaires, for heads of state, and you don't want to be making mistakes in front of these people, but by putting undue pressure on yourself, then most likely you might actually be moving in the wrong direction. So typically what I like to do is give myself the leeway of making five mistakes. And I learned this from one of my mentors and teachers and friends is Juan Tamariz, a very famous Spanish magician from Madrid, Spain. He says that he gives himself the leeway to make five errors because you know you're going. You're human. You know that you're liable to make a mistake. So if you make a mistake, why be so hard on yourself? So what Tom Murray says is, if you make a mistake, first mistake, you just chalk it off. Number one, that's mistake number one, and you just keep moving forward. Uh, As another friend of mine says, it ain't Shakespeare. So if you make a mistake, it's okay, and. If you make mistake number two and you're like, okay, there was mistake number two to be expected within my given five mistakes in this show. Make mistake number three and you're like, okay, well, hold on a second. Maybe this isn't the audience. Maybe this might be me. Let me really kind of drill down here and and focus on what's going wrong. Mistake number four, I actually have never gotten that far, but I would probably be thinking to myself, maybe I shouldn't have drunk that beer before this show. <laughs> and then mistake number five would be like, okay, you know, we're, we're on red alert, but still within the range of allowables. So the point being, if you know that you're human, which we all are, it's okay to make a mistake and audiences are forgiving. And even with the magic trick, where if someone sees the hidden handkerchief sticking out of your hand, you know, it's like, okay, well, how else would I do the trick? Of course I have two. But that makes it much harder to make them both disappear and then make both the handkerchiefs disappear. So, you know, there's lots of different ways that you can think on your toes to just kind of get out of something if you made a mistake. And that's just being resourceful. I like to call it spontaneous resourcefulness. And that goes into another one of my maxims, which is be prepared. And we could talk about that one later.
0: Yeah, well, uh, we'll talk about it. I think that's the last one you have there. Okay, so expect success, go with a positive attitude, think about how things can go right, and then have contingency plans if things don't go according to the original plan. The third maxim is don't state, suggest. So flesh that out for us. What does that look like?
1: Okay, well, this is something that, you know, I've actually learned with the character that I've created, which is the millionaire's magician. So millionaire's magician doesn't necessarily mean that we check people's bank balances at the front door when they're checking in. But, you know, I am a character, I've created a character and I portray a character on stage. And what I like to think of is anyone when you're in front of an audience is playing a character. Now, maybe it's just an Enlargement or enhancement of yourself when you're off stage or when you're not in front of you know of an audience, but you're basically creating a a visual and an auditory vision of what you should be like, what your what you want your audience to take away. So, do you want your audience to think of you as someone conservative, someone funny? Do you want to think of you as a an open collar person versus a button down collar person and necktie, no necktie, dress, no you know uh, casual clothes. I personally am wearing a tuxedo when I perform. I wear, you know, an evening wear or sometimes I wear a morning suit and it, what it does is suggests how I expect my audience to behave with me. If I were wearing a t-shirt and jeans and, you know, black sneakers when performing in my venue, it wouldn't make sense. If I was a character in a book or a movie, the author wouldn't write about it would be such a disconnect to have someone casual in such a formal environment. So the Venue, plus my attitude, plus my clothing, plus the way I groom myself and the way I speak, all of these kind of suggest that the audience should act a certain way toward me. And fortunately, by making this large, you know, kind of stage that people are coming into, they're stepping into a scene in a play in a way. And that's how I like to think of, you know, suggesting as opposed to stating. We don't tell people, you're going to be stepping back in time, walking into a 19th century parlor. You know, we just, once they walk in, they kind of discover it themselves. And then they react in the way that I've kind of set them up to. And I think that's actually a better... Mechanism rather than for me to force it down their throat, it would be kind of an insult to your intelligence. If I just said to you, I possess magical powers and you're going to believe in my special abilities, people would say, Come on, you know, like, who do you think you are? But if I slowly wrap them up into this world where they start seeing incredible things happen and they realize that this is a step out of reality, then they enter my world. And I've seen this not only in magic. I've seen great salesmen, salespeople do this. You know, even if you go to a sale, like a seminar, like let's say Tony Robbins or someone who's a motivational speaker, like during the time that you're with that person, you are wrapped up in their world. And it's not because they forced you to, but it's because you responded to the suggestions that they made.
0: Okay. So if a regular person, if you want people to treat you with respect and authority, then dress that way act that way. Don't tell people you have to respect. Yeah. Usually if you you have to tell people you must respect me, I've lost already. Um, (laughs) Of course. Of course.
1: I I remember what this happened one time. I had a very horrible performance. It was in Long Island, this uh, women's event that I got hired to do. And they were not there to watch a magic show. They were there to kibitz with each other. And they were there to, it was like some sort of a, a, um, like a flea market type of thing that I don't even know why they hired me to perform at it. But it was just an awkward environment for me to perform in. And all through the show, the audience was not really paying attention. They were just chit-chatting with each other. And at one point, I realized I can't go on. I can't continue this performance. I was standing on a platform and nobody was paying attention. So... I stopped the show and I walked off. And then this lady who had hired me walked on and said, "Come on, everyone! This guy is really good. You should pay attention to him. You should pay attention to him. He's really good." And I walked back up on stage, and it was even worse (laughs) because by begging, you know, it it just the whole thing fell apart. So yeah, that was that was an example of trying to convince someone with your words that you're good is not as good as trying to convince them just by
0: your suggestions. We're gonna take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. There are millions of workers, but there's only one you, with only one body. So why wear it down with lesser power tools? You deserve ease. You deserve safety. You deserve Bosch. With Bosch tools, you can raise the X-lock, hammer drill, or two-in-one with pride and know that you deserve it. Now lower it, safety first. Bosch tools, what hard workers deserve. It's wedding season, and while weddings are all about the bride and groom, they're also a chance for you to look your best. With a fully custom suit from Indochino, you'll walk into wedding season looking like a million bucks, even though suits start at just $499. It's easier than ever to be the best dressed with Indochino. Order your custom suits now and they'll be ready for wedding season. The process of customizing a suit on Indochino, very easy to do. It's also a lot of fun. I've talked about my navy blue suit I've gotten from Indochino. First off, you can decide how the jacket is, how you want the pockets on the jacket to be, how you want the lapels, uh, the vent on the back, the lining on the pants. You can decide you want pleats or no pleats. I went no pleats on my pants on this one. And then you do the measuring process. You'll need someone to help you, but they have this very easy to follow guide. Send that all in, in a few weeks, you have a custom made-to-measure suit sent directly to your door, and you're going to pay about the same price for a suit that you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. Look your best this wedding season at the table or on the dance floor when you wear Indochino. Go to Indochino.com today and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Check it out today. Have you always struggled with finding time to manage your finances? At the end of a busy week, the last thing you want to do is spend time budgeting all of your expenses or tracking down customer service teams to cancel old subscriptions you no longer use. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. My favorite feature on Rocket Money is finding those unwanted subscriptions. If you're like me, you have a bunch of those things you signed up for but forgot about uh, streaming services, newsletters, maybe some fitness plans. You just connect your account to the app, Rocket Money finds the recurring subscription fees, and then you can easily cancel them from the app. It's a really cool, cool service. They also have a service that can help you lower your bill. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with the customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all the app's features. That's a lot of money. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com manliness. That's rocketmoney.com manliness. rocketmoney.com manliness. Have you ever been to an event where you just had to get the best seats? Like maybe it was a concert for your favorite band or maybe it was an important game for your favorite team. Well, to do that, you had to set an alarm uh, to get the tickets as soon as they went on sale. When you want the best, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. It's like if you are trying to hire for your business and you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. So what's the best way to do that? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. Amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best people fast. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com. Slash manliness, Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness, M-A-N-L-I-N-E-S-S. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And now back to the show. So the fourth maxim is practice, practice, practice. Walk us through the amount of practice you have done and still do as a magician. Like what does your practice process look like?
1: Okay, so I'm practicing all the time. I've been doing magic since I was six. I'm now 52. And there's not a day that goes by where I'm not with a deck of cards in my hands or practicing with coins or other small objects. Sometimes I'll practice a move, uh, a sleight of hand move with a deck of cards, for example, for years before I'm ready to really include it in my performance. And the idea is to make the moves so smooth and so subtle that they become invisible to the audience. Not only wouldn't they be able to see them, but they wouldn't even be able to sense them or, det- or, or be able to, to realize that there's any sort of tension in my hands. Really, that's what the human eye responds to is tension right if you see something tense up then you think oh there must be something going on there i have to pay attention so really what i'm trying to do with my magic is perfect the moves refine them to such a degree that they really kind of disappear from your suspicion so practice for me is something that's fun i think that uh, that practice should be an enjoyable experience it, you know of course it could be grueling and at the end of the day you might be sweaty but that procedure of pushing yourself to get better and better should be something that's enjoyable. If you don't enjoy the craft, maybe trying something else might be a better use of your time. If you don't enjoy the hard work that you have to put into something in order to enjoy the spoils, then maybe that craft might not be the one for you. So what I like to do is I just practice in isolation. Sometimes I'll I'll practice something with my eyes closed. After I've perfected the, the slide, I'll practice it without looking. Another times I'll practice it without speaking. So kind of isolating the different skills rather than performing the move with my patter, which is the language that magicians use to back up the trick. Uh, sometimes I'll just perform it in silence and just go through the entire routine, which could be like you know an eight, eight minute performance silently, almost like a silent movie. Sometimes I'll just put the props away and do it without any emotion. I'll just do it in my head or I'll just say the words aloud and then I'm focusing on the language. So most importantly, though, I think is what I call PP and PP is people's practice or people practice. When you perform in front of people, that's when you really can understand what all of this means and how it will play out in the real world. So, you know, performing in front of a mirror or in front of a video camera is great and it's a necessity before you perform in front of an audience, but you never really learn until you perform in front of living, breathing people. And, you know, I'll be honest, like there's been times where I thought a trick would go really well by practicing and then I get in front of people and they could see through it instantly. And I'm like, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? And the fact is, I just only practiced it in isolation. I didn't get it in front of real people. And, you know, you learn by listening to the audience. I remember one time David Copperfield came to my show at the Waldorf Astoria where I I started. And Copperfield and I spent time about two hours afterwards. And he said to me, you can't write a show like that. What you just put on was a show that was responding to the audience and you've listened to the audience for so many years that you learned what works and you've learned what doesn't work. And he was right. I've never actually written a script for the show. I mean, now I've transcribed the show, but I never wrote, sat down and wrote every word out. But I listened to the audience and I listened to what they responded to. And therefore it became more of a success.
0: When you're doing this people practice, when you first start out, like let's say you're doing a new trick, you're not going to your main event show. The chamber show. Are you going to maybe like just random people with low stakes? to do that.
1: (laughs) That's that's one way to do it. That's one way to do it. You know, um, I have a, a, the challenge that I have right now is, you know, I have an audience that expects something. They they expect nothing but excellence, right? If they're paying top Broadway money to come to see my show, which it, it is, you know, there was a time when we were charging $750 per ticket to the show. Now we've lowered it back down to a more reasonable range of between $125 and $350 per ticket. So we're talking, you know, still a significant investment. You're not expecting to see someone try things out for the first time, right? This shouldn't be the venue, the playground where he's trying out uh, his experimental work. So I do need to have a place to perform and try out these things. And that could be as simple as trying out a magic trick for my, my, my family, or it could be trying out some magic for my dry cleaner at the dry cleaning shop, or it could be, you know, just even not even performing the trick, but just telling people about it. And sometimes by telling people about it, then it actually helps to find what people find intriguing about it without even performing the trick. So I know I've I've experienced this. I'm friends with David Blaine, and I remember when David Blaine would talk about uh, you know his upcoming stunt, he would tell people about it and tell people about it, and he would see what people were excited by. So if he's saying like I'm going to stand on top of a pillar. People go, oh, okay, I'm going to stand on top of a pillar for 72 hours. People go, oh, really? So, yeah, there's not going to be anything there for me to, to hold on to. And if the wind comes, I can just be blown off the top of this pillar. And Then he sees the audience go, oh, and you see by learning what makes the audience go, oh, you know, you don't even have to be performing it. You could just be telling the story of something. And by telling the story of something before you actually do it in front of the target audience, you learn in advance what's intriguing to other people.
0: And I imagine, you know, you talk about how regular people can apply this. If you are given a presentation, you just want to practice that over and over again. And then do it in front of people too. Do it in front of family members, low stakes. Another thing that I thought of was, as I was reading that section on how non-magicians could practice in front of people with low stakes. Let's say you want to get better at public speaking. Toastmasters. We had a guest uh, on the show who wrote a, a book about Toastmasters. Great place to go. Everyone's there to get better and give you feedback. There's no stakes involved. But he found that actually doing the public speaking, that's how he got better at it. So you can do the same thing as a regular person that a magician does.
1: Correct, correct. You get good at something by doing it. I mean, it's as simple as that. There's no real substitute for what Penn Gillette often calls flight time on stage. You know, as a pilot, you get your pilot's license by the number of hours you've flown. And the same thing with skydiving, right? You know, by the number of jumps you've done. So it's the same thing on stage. The more that you're on stage, the more you're actually paying yourself to become a better performer.
0: All right. So the final maxim, we just mentioned it a while back ago, is be prepared. So as a magician, what does this look like?
1: Well, you know, when I walk into any room, the first thing I start to do is I look around and see what's there. And I'm a magician, so I you know I should be able to do magic with anything. So I look around and I see, oh, here's a salt shaker. over there, there's a, you know, there's a, a piece of newspaper. Over here, this person's wearing a diamond ring. That woman has earrings on. This guy's got a, a, a submariner watch. And I'm thinking, like, what can I do with any of those objects? And I have a kind of a mental Rolodex that I go through and I think, okay, I know tricks with a watch. I know tricks with a salt shaker. I know tricks with a newspaper. And now I'm starting to formulate things in advance so that when it comes down to the time of performance, which may be half an hour from now, I'm never caught unaware. And... That's the beauty of it is that you're kind of, I'm a, I'm a Boy Scout. I was actually an Eagle Scout when I was younger in Troop 174 from Yorktown Heights, New York. And so, you know, the the slogan of the Boy Scouts is to be prepared. And I really think that's key to being a magician, having months, maybe even years of planning in advance before the audience even knows that there is a performance being given. Michael Weber, a well-known magician, says that you have to be so far ahead of the game that the audience doesn't even know there's a game being played yet. And I really love that. I think that you have to really just be thinking several steps ahead. And what it boils down to is just knowing your audience. Like when I go into an audience or when I'm performing for people, I like to know what kind of a crowd this is. So maybe in advance, I might just look at the sales list for the day and say, okay, where are these people coming from? Oh, okay, we have people coming from California. We have people coming from from France. We have people who are visiting from China. We've got people who are visiting from the tri-state area. It helps me to know the audience in advance. And I like to call that the get-to-know-you technique. It's just really like you know having a little bit of rapport before the audience realizes that there's a need to have a rapport. And that preparation
0: will help you out even before you arrive. So you have a chapter that's all about building up conviction and confidence in yourself. Why is that important for you as a magician in order to win the crowd?
1: Well, think about it. People want to be around people who are confident and who are almost uh, larger than life. I think that it's more interesting to be around people who are sure of themselves, right? I mean, when you walk into any sort of an an event or if you're going to be giving a presentation again, we don't want someone who is a self-proclaimed failure to be giving us advice. We want someone who's going to be, you know, rather accomplished giving us advice because maybe we might learn something from them. You know, we're always more interested in people who are bringing something to the table that we don't personally already have. So that's one of the beauties of being a magician is that you know people aren't exposed to magic every day. So when they come across someone who's a magician and this person appears to be a good magician, then they're probably going to be excited to be with you. And that's really what it is. It's kind of building up the excitement of being in your presence. And, you know, again, you don't want to make it like you're fishing for their, their approbation, or you want to make it so that they just feel excited to be around you because you seem like a fun person, or you seem like an intelligent person, or you seem like someone who brings something to their life that they don't already have.
0: And how do you develop that confidence and conviction?
1: Once again, it boils down to being sure in your work, you know, thinking that your own work is important. I'll put it this way. You know, Actually, there's a great story. I'm going to, I'm going to tell you this story. It's, it's, it's in the book, so I'll read it to you uh, the way I wrote it. It's actually pretty concise. So there are three bricklayers, and someone asks the three laborers, what are you doing? And the first bricklayer says, I'm laying brick. And the second bricklayer says, I'm making $10 an hour. But the third bricklayer says, me, I'm building the world's greatest cathedral. And I really love the attitude of that third bricklayer because he knows that his work is important to himself. So, you know, being a magician is not on the highest list of people's prestigious occupations. You know, I I remember going through customs in London one time I was arriving for a performance and the customs agent said to me after looking at my passport, what do you do for a living? And it said, magician. And he laughed at me and he pointed at my ski cap and he said, what, are you going to pull a rabbit out of your ski cap? Come on, what's your real job? And I had to tell him, I'm really a magician, but I'm proud of that. And being proud of your work, thinking that your work is important, thinking that you do a first-rate job, that's important. You know, you can say to yourself even, there's like a, a mantra, you can say, I am important. I perform my work with dignity. I do a first-rate job every day and you know it's important to think that your work is important and i whether you're a banker whether you're a salesperson whether you're a performer like me or anything you do you never say i am just a blank i'm just a clerk i'm just an analyst you know basically you have to put a, a top hat on your head mentally and think i'm a magician I'm not a literal magician but I do things in a magical way. I do things with power. I do things with confidence. And by telling yourself that, you kind of make yourself into a little bit of a celebrity. And you know, no one wants to walk around thinking like, "Oh, I'm an A-list celebrity if you're not." But if you think of yourself as someone with power and ability and and maybe even a sense of beauty and and it just builds your own confidence. You could do that by dressing a certain way. You could do that by speaking with uh, you know, by puffing up your chest and you know, it makes you just feel a little bit more confident, and then you'll see the response of people. And when people respond that way, it kind of is a feedback loop.
0: Okay, so again, you have to kind of do—you uh, have to maybe suggest yourself. Don't state to yourself; suggest to yourself that you are—you are confident, right? So dress the way and act the way. Exactly. Move, you talk about in the book, like move like deliberately and with conciseness. That can also help bolster your confidence. I
1: agree. I remember one time I had a. Uh, I had a superintendent in my building in New York City, one of my early one of my first apartments and this guy really did not know what he was doing. He was uh, kind of a just a bumbling super meaning that he didn't really know how to screw a screw into the into the wall and you know if he was reaching for his screwdriver in the toolkit he didn't even know where it was he had to dig around and find basic tools and then he didn't know where to you know did I have a a, a Phillips head screwdriver or a flathead screw he really was just clueless. And I realized, I can't trust this man to help me with fixing my sink because it's not going to hold. We, later on, that guy got fired, uh, not surprised. And then they hired a new super, and this super was really on top of things. So when he reached for the screwdriver, it was where he expected it to be. And when he was uh, putting together the cabinet that I needed him to help me fix, you know, it went together one, two, three, snipity-snap. And it had to do with the fact that he was confident and he acted deliberately. He knew where things were and it gave me a sense of confidence as you know, a resident is in his building. So when I'm performing my shows, I like to have things always in the same place. So if I reach, I don't even need to look where my hand is moving. I know that an object is where it is because it's always there. And I have the luxury of always performing, of course, in the same venue. So you know, if I put something down, it's going to always be in the same spot. I don't have to fun- go fumbling for it or looking for it. So the audience sees that I'm a confident person because there's no hiccups. I just reach for something. It's always there. I'm able to do what I do with an intent. And what I also like to do, and I mentioned this also in the book, is to speak to myself. Is this how an important person would say this? Or is this how a powerful person would act? Would my boss act this way? Would my customer act this way? And would a successful person argue over this or not? And so by mentally framing these things in your head and then adjusting the way that you speak or present it, you're actually leading
0: yourself into a successful path. So one of my favorite chapters in the book was all about how to command a room. And this this is useful advice for someone who's presenting in front of an audience, giving a pitch at a a business meeting or giving a public speech. Or I, I think it also applied just to an everyday social interactions. And so this idea of commanding the room, the first step you say you have to do as a magician is you have to own the stage. As a magician, how do you own the stage so that you can command the room?
1: What I like to do is first, I like to always arrive at the venue Early and tread the boards, the boards meaning the stage, right? That's the actor's uh, vernacular for walking onto a stage. So I like to walk on the stage and just get the feel for what the space is like. How deep is the room? How wide is this space? Do I need to step up steps before I walk onto the stage? Will there be a backstage area? Is there a green room? I just need to know all about the parameters that I'll be performing in first so that there's no surprises. Like That's really one of the key things, I think, uh, about being a pro is reducing the number of surprises in your presentations so that by the time you actually get up there in front of an audience, you're able to focus on the people and the interaction and the give and take with your audience as opposed to, is this glass of water going to tip over if I move my arm out? Or does the stage have like a squeaky floor? Or Am I going to walk too far towards the audience and possibly fall off stage? Knowing all these things in advance just reduces the number of variables so that when you get up there, you're not going
0: to really be worried too much. I, th- I think that's really good. So I think if you're giving a public speech, I think that's useful advice too. You get up there early, know what the stage looks like, make sure you know where the podium is going to be. And you can even, if you want to own the stage, you can probably maybe move things around, right? Well, I don't like this. Let's move this around. That can help instill some more confidence in you, in yourself. I agree. One one way that you can do
1: this, even in your own life, when you're just sitting at a, a table, let's say you're having a business meeting or business talk at a restaurant. So I like to think of the interaction as kind of like a control of the real estate of that table. And people don't often think about this, but you can move things around on tables that you have more space. You can move the glass out of the way. You can move the flower vase out of the way. You can move the salt shaker out of the way. You can move the plates and stack them up. You can move the forks so that you have more room. And even just subtle things like this show that you're owning your environment. So again, these are not overt things. You don't say like, look, I'm going to take over this table. Therefore, I own this conversation. It's not that overt. It never is. You know, a lot of what being a magician is, is about making these implications of power and the implication of power then kind of gives a little bit of a hint or a clue for someone to respond to you just that little bit differently. So I do this oftentimes, you know, I'll make the space mine. And by making the space mine, I just feel like there's less that's going to impede me from moving forward in the way I planned. So I, I think that's a little a tiny tip that you can try. It doesn't cost you anything, right? When you're at a restaurant, you know, just try that. Even when you're out with on a date or you're with your family, it doesn't take any extra effort. But you might just feel a little different and a little more powerful because you've done something to create your own space. Now, when I walk on stage, you asked about how do you command the room? I have ways of walking in. That I use, and I've learned this again from my teacher, Juan Tamariz, who's a a teacher not only to me, but to thousands of magicians around the world, but has fortunately become a personal friend. So, Tamariz taught this great technique when you walk on stage to fan the room with your eyes. Now, what does that mean? So, usually when you walk on, you're not walking on from the back of the auditorium or back of the audience towards the front. You're walking on from the side, right? You have to, let's say the audience is in front of you, you're walking onto stage from either left stage for stage left or stage right. And so let's say you're walking on from stage right. So you're walking on up maybe a few steps or maybe just, you know, onto the stage. And the audience will see your profile if you're looking at stage left. They'll only see your profile. But wouldn't it be great if every person can see the front of your face, a full frontal view, to give your smile a chance to shine? Well, the way that you do that is when you're walking on stage, you start looking at the audience that's furthest to your left, if you're starting from the right. And then as you get to the center stage, you fan your face, meaning you turn your head all the way towards the area where you walked on. So you're giving the entire almost 180 degree circle or half circle of your face to the entire audience. And they're now able to see you and experience you with your smile and your, your light in your eyes, rather than just your profile. And it just gives you a more of a connection right away. There's a, an interesting thing I didn't write about in this book, but I've learned since, is if you watch a Mickey Mouse cartoon, like anything for, you know, uh, Walt Disney, you know, animation, you'll see that Mickey Mouse's ears are always full circles or often full circles. I'm sure there's exemptions to this. But oftentimes what will happen is even if he turns his head left or turns his head right, you'll still see these full circles of his ears because that's the iconic Mickey Mouse pose and face and image and icon that we've become familiar with. So, you know, it's in a similar way. Imagine if you're able to show your face to every audience, every part of the audience, no matter where they're seated, in the left, right, middle, back, center. When you walk on, that's how you do that by fanning
0: the room. Well, another tip that I liked in there about walking on to uh, the stage is that you don't start from a dead stop. You actually start walking when you're off stage so that when you hit on stage, it looks more like you're floating and not sort of getting started. And that, it just adds some dynamism to your presence.
1: Right. So one one of the things I I like to call it is the invisible steps. So so again, let's say that you're walking on stage from behind a curtain, rather than just standing still and then walking on, which means that you're kind of, ramping up to your full speed and your full kind of energy, take a couple of steps back from the curtain and start the advancement onto stage from several feet away from the edge of the stage. So by the time that you hit the curtain and you've broken the curtain line, now the audience sees you coming out in a powerful and energetic way. Now I learned this the hard way from being on the David Letterman show. I was a guest on Letterman when he had Close-Up Magic Week. And if you haven't seen my performance of that on YouTube, you should check it out. It was a really great experience. But I remember standing backstage, I was kind of petrified because this is, you know, the Ed Sullivan Theater, I'm backstage. This is where the Beatles performed. I mean, come on. I was, you know, pretty intimidated. And Biff Henderson, who is the stage manager, he shoved my shoulder when it was time for me to walk on. So I heard Letterman say, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Steve Cohen. And then Biff Henderson shoves me and my first step onto the stage was a stumble. And I stumbled on and then kind of got my pace and kept on walking to center stage. So why am I telling you this? It looked stupid. And I mean, maybe it didn't really feel that or didn't look that bad to the viewer at home. But when I look at it, I was like, man, I did not have control over that entrance. Someone else controlled the entrance for me. And that's not how I want to walk on stage. So now I have this solid rule that by the time they see me break into the spotlight, I'm walking in, in full energy capacity. And I think that's done by taking a few steps off stage
0: before entering on stage. So in a magic show, there's the trick itself. Right. And that's the technique is important, but an important part to make the trick work is the patter, like the words you're using while you're doing the trick, because it's going to help direct people's attention where you want it to be. And it also just makes it more engaging in in the book. You give some specific things that you do when you're writing your patter, uh, your script to be persuasive. I like some of these things were interesting. Like one is you used uh, what's called layered commands. So instead of saying to someone here, hold this card uh, you'll say, stand up and hold this card there's two commands there stand up and hold this card what is it about putting two commands that helps you be more persuasive as a magician and people think that patter is just you know the
1: banter the idle language that magicians use to kind of distract you from what's really happening but the fact is it's all serving the end purpose of a successful demonstration of magic is that the language has to support the magic the handling, and the handling has to support the language. They have to really coexist in, in like kind of a symbiosis. So there's no magic words like alakazam or hocus pocus or abracadabra that will really create magic. But there are patterns of language that you can use even if you're not a magician, to kind of create a magical outcome. So this concept of a layered command, which is basically a command, the word and, and another command, it makes it harder for people to say no to either one of those two commands. So for example, if I were to say to you, stand up, it's easy for you to resist and say, well, no, why? And if I were to say, here, hold the end of this rope person says, Well, why? What am I gonna what do you want me to do? They they can resist it. But if I say, stand up and hold the end of this rope, people will not really deny either of those. They'll simply stand up and hold the rope. And it's kind of uncanny. It's something you should really give a try to. And you can try it again, not just if you're a magician, because most people listening to this aren't magicians, but you could try it, let's say with your kid, you know, if you could say, you know, take out the garbage and close the door when you go out. And so take out the garbage they might say no to close the door behind you when they go out, they might say no to, but take out the garbage and close the door. It's like, okay, there's two commands. It's almost short circuits the ability to say no on, uh, you know, in the office, you know, finish this project and let me know when you're done. They're not going to not finish the project. They're not going to not let you know when you're done because you've given them two commands, you know, come over here and give me a kiss. By the way, don't use that at the office. (laughs) If you're on a date, come over here and give me a kiss. You know, these are small little things you can try. Now, does it work every time? No. But will it work? Yes. And, you know, it's actually fun to try these layered commands and see what works for you. Nothing is an exact science. But. It could work, and when it does work, it actually you can see if you can make it work again, because you know what works for you is not going to work for me, and vice versa. So you give these these layered commands; it'll give you the feeling of being an authority figure. It helps you appear stronger, and yeah, I, I think that's a really fun one to try. Now, another magic word, so to speak, which I might recommend your listeners use if you want to give this try yourself, uh, Brett. It might be fun, is to use what I call the trailing or, and I use this. All the time in my work, and anyone could use this. It's not just limited to magicians. I say, Would you like to shuffle the deck or? And then it's just dot, dot, dot. Now, the answer at that point would likely be no. So I say, Would you like to shuffle the deck of cards or? And the reason is because in people's heads, they're finishing the sentence. The last word would be not, right? So would you like to shuffle the deck or not? But since I never say the word not, They say out loud no, so that's where it starts to become an interesting thing. Would you mind if I eat the last piece of pizza? Or and people would say no, go ahead. You know, will there be a problem with that? Or and the people would say no, 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 there's no problem. Do you mind if I leave a little early? Or. I see people that say, sure. You know, it just feels like the natural ending to the sentence, not. And since people are saying it in their own head, they just will say no. Now, if you shrug your shoulders a little bit and kind of like, you know, shake your head no as you're saying it, it also kind of gives them more of an incentive to respond no. And it just try this. I'm telling you, it's a, it's a fun project to try on your own. You could just drop it in today to your conversation and see
0: if it actually works in your favor. Well, Steve, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about your work? Well, let me tell you a little secret.
1: Oh, that's another one. Go to that's another chambermagic.com. That's, a, that's one of my other magic words. The moment you say, let me tell you a little secret, people will lean in. They're going to now want to know what your secret is. So even if you're not a magician, again, like you, everyone's got a secret, right? We all have secrets that we don't want people to know, to see, you know? So, so if you say to someone, let me tell you a little secret. I really shouldn't tell you this, but promise me, you won't tell this to anyone, but you can find more about me at chambermagic.com. Right? So now people are like, oh, wow, this is something that you know we weren't supposed to hear, we weren't supposed to know about. You know, when people say, let me tell you a secret, it means pay attention. So I like to use that expression a lot. By the way, the show runs every weekend at the Lote New York Palace Hotel, which is a really grand hotel in the middle of New York City. The show runs 250 live performances every year. So I'm always there. Uh, every Friday and every Saturday. And it's a really fun place. If you do come to the show, please don't hesitate to walk up and tap me on the shoulder and say that you heard about it from this conversation. I love to meet people before, during, and after the show. And as you can see, I'm, yeah, I try to be as personable and as, uh, as welcoming as I can to anyone who comes. So please, if you do come, let me know that you heard about it from this.
0: And maybe they can... Uh try to put a quarter in your pocket too while they're at it.
1: Absolutely. That's the thing. Definitely drop a quarter in my pocket. I will act surprised.
0: (laughs) Well, Steve Cohen, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. My
1: pleasure. Thanks for inviting me.
0: My guest, is was Steve Cohen. He's the author of the book Win the Crowd. It's available on amazon.com. You can find more information about his work at his website, chambermagic.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash win the crowd where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanless.com where you find our podcast archives, as well as thousands of articles that we've written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to StitcherPremium.com, sign up, use code to at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android and iOS, and you can start enjoying ad free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a apple podcast or Spotify. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time's Brett McKay, reminding you to not listen to the podcast, but put what you've heard into action.